0: It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. U.S. stock market averages finished an up week on a down note. In fact, the S&P 500, before closing negative on the day, made a new all-time record high. The S&P is the only major index that did make a new record high this week. In fact, Donald Trump tweeted about the record high in the S&P twice yesterday. As soon as the market gapped open at a record high, Donald Trump tweeted out a reminder that the S&P opened at a record high And then when it closed at a record high, he sent out a second tweet to remind everybody that the stock market closed at a record high. And the idea is that, well, he's taking credit for it, that the stock market is doing so well because Donald Trump is president. And if anybody else was president, the market would be collapsing. That's the impression that Donald Trump is trying to convey. But of course, the reality is the opposite. The reason the market made a new high is because they are relieved investors are relieved that the Fed is going to cut interest rates. So it's lower interest rates that is behind the record high in the S&P, not anything Donald Trump has done. Now, sure, Donald Trump is saying, hey, I've been telling the Fed to cut rates, so maybe he can claim credit for the fact that the Fed is cutting rates because he beat them up so much and said they should cut rates. So, But that's really not what he's trying to claim. He's trying to claim that the rising stock market Is indicative of how great the economy is under his presidency. But it's not because the economy is great that the Fed is cutting rates. It's because it's lousy. The Fed is cutting rates because the economy is headed for recession. So if that's the only reason the stock market is going up, that the economy is so bad that the Federal Reserve has to abort their rate tightening campaign and they have to come to an emergency rescue mission, they have to try to bail out the economy with rate cuts, is that really something that Donald Trump should be bragging about? In fact, one of the other reasons that the Fed is cutting is to artificially prop up the stock market because in December of last year, we had the worst December since the Great Depression. The markets plunged into bear market territory and the market would have kept falling had the Fed not called off its scheduled rate hikes. In fact, had the Fed ignored market weakness and just continued to raise rates as they had pretended they were going to do, I bet the stock market today would be lower than it was on the day that Donald Trump was elected. So the reason that it's at a record high is because the Federal Reserve aborted uh, its planned rate hikes and is now about to cut. So we went from tight money to cheap money right? We went from a tightening bias to an easing bias. And instead of anticipating rate hikes, the markets are now factoring in rate cuts. That is why the market is going up. It's not because of the strong economy, which is the inference that Trump is hoping that people draw. Although I still think the markets are getting it wrong uh, when they're rallying, because this recession is going to be particularly problematic for the stock market. Because number one, the recession is going to bite into corporate earnings. You have a lot of high expectations out there because not too long ago, people were very optimistic on the economy. In fact, they still are because they're pretty confident that the Fed's cuts will avert the recession. What investors don't understand is that we're going to get a recession despite the fact that the Fed is cutting rates. Now, of course, the Fed wants to pretend right, that these rate cuts are are some kind of insurance policy to make sure we don't have recession. But the reality is we're gonna have a recession regardless of the fact that the Fed is gonna cut rates. So corporate earnings are going to decline and that is bearish for an overpriced stock market. But what's really gonna clobber corporate earnings is going to be tax increases on corporations because investors haven't even begun to factor in the political implications of the next recession. Because if the next recession starts before the next election, Donald Trump will lose. As I said on my last podcast, he's already polling badly in all of the states he needs to win. And the economy is not even in a recession. So if we are in a recession, he's going to poll even worse. His main issue is the economy. If he loses that, he's got nothing. But the stock market isn't factoring this in because if we get democrats in the white house and in congress in addition to a recession that reduces corporate earnings higher taxes are going to diminish those earnings even more because what counts is after-tax earnings and it was the tax cuts that gave a boost to corporate earnings after-tax earnings that's one of the reasons that the stock market was able to rally was because of the positive effect of the tax cuts on their earnings well tax hikes are going to have the opposite effect on their earnings so it's going to be a double whammy. the recession is going to reduce earnings and then tax hikes are going to reduce them even further and the markets haven't even begun uh, to consider the implications there but the real action this week wasn't in the stock market even though it made a, a record high The real action was in the gold market. And I've been talking a lot about gold finally breaking out, moving above that six year resistance range, which was around 1350 to 1375. That's what was capping every gold rally for the past six years. Well, in the last two days, we finally blew through that resistance. We got as high as 1410, I believe, last night. And we closed today at $13.99, up $11.10, the highest close in about six years or almost six years. But if you look at a chart, we have clearly broken through uh, the overhead resistance. And I like the action over the last couple of days. A lot of buying coming out of Asia. We're seeing the big moves happening in the Asian economies. We are seeing selling coming in. In fact, even yesterday, last night, even though gold got up about 20, 22, 23 dollars, got to 1410, it then sold off negative when we came back into our time zone, but then they bought it back and gold rallied back again, and then they sold it off later in the day and then it rallied back again. So the market is looking very strong above what used to be very very substantial resistance. And of course, what was resistance will become support. So that old resistance is the new support for the price of gold and it is going much, much higher. And, you know, one of the interesting elements is I think people are still in denial about the legitimacy of the breakout. I mean, that's why I think so many people are still trying to sell gold. That's why we're getting these dips. But there is tremendous buying coming into the market and so they're not able to sell it down. But I think you still have uh, Some concern that this is a phony breakout, that, okay, this, you know, it's a false signal. I don't want to buy it yet. I mean, look at the gold stocks. I mean, gold stocks are going up. I mean, they're not, you know, they had a nice week, but not as nice as it should have been given the significance of this breakout. The GDX did make a new high for the year. The GDXJ, which is junior gold miners, however, did not. It's still not at a new 52-week high, even though gold is near a six-year high. And both of these indexes have a long way to go to get back to where they were the last time gold was at 1400 And then look at silver. The price of silver was down today. It was down six cents. And it was up yesterday, but not that much. In fact, I saw the gold and silver ratio earlier this morning at 91.5, meaning it took... 91 and a half ounces of silver to buy an ounce of gold now based on the close uh the ratio improved a little bit to 91.3 but this is about as low as it's ever been and why is this because if there's going to be a bull market in gold well you would expect a bull market in silver But if you think this is not a bull marketing gold, if you're expecting the price of gold to fall because you think this is a false breakout, well, then you might not want to buy silver because if the price of gold falls, well, then the price of silver is going to fall even more, even though it's at a record low relative to gold. That's normally what happens. So the fact that you're not getting buying of silver, to me, is just another confirmation that people don't believe the breakout because if they did believe the breakout. They would be buying silver. But since they don't, they're not. Now, some people can say, Peter, maybe you're just overlooking the fact that silver is failing to confirm the gold breakout. And so maybe it's not a real breakout because it's not being confirmed by silver. And maybe you can argue that, but I don't think so. I think the significance of this breakout uh, is more important than the fact that silver hasn't confirmed. I think the fact that silver hasn't confirmed is indicative that people don't believe what they're seeing because they're just... This bear market has been so brutal, the psychology has been to sell every gold rally that I think people are waiting for more distance between 1400 and the price of gold before they're willing to accept that this breakout is real and not a head fake. And once they do, they are going to be pouring into the silver market. Now, since I believe this breakout is legitimate, I think that buying silver is is a great opportunity right now. Because I think that once the breakout really is confirmed, once maybe we move up to 1450 in the price of gold and it's clear that it's headed higher, we can see a 2 or $3 move in the price of silver in one day. On the other hand, even if this is another false breakout, I don't see significant downside for gold. And I think if it doesn't break out this time, it's going to do it next time. So there's probably not a lot of significant downside in the price of silver. So I think it's an asymmetric trade right here to be buying into silver because I think the upside potential if this is a real gold breakout is so much greater than the downside risk if it turns out to be a head fake and the real breakout happens further into the future because gold's going to break out eventually. If this isn't it, it's coming. But to me, I think all the signs are there. That this is it in fact look at what happened in the foreign exchange market this week a week week for the us dollar the dollar index was down one and a half percent on the week it closed pretty much on the lows of the week uh 96.2 i think the lowest i saw was maybe 96.15 and that happened today so this was the low day of the week and we closed at the low of the week uh, and the swiss franc was even stronger uh, against the dollar. US dollar lost better than 2% of its value against the Swiss franc. And that's a leading indicator. If people are seeking out the Swiss franc as a safe haven, uh, then they're worried. They're worried about the dollar and also they're worried about the dollar. They are buying gold. So the dollar's going lower. Gold's going higher. To me, this is a very significant event. The media, of course, is overlooking this. I think they're downplaying the significance. I'm not seeing that much reporting on the price of gold. Nobody's calling me, really. I'm not getting reporters. I, know I did talk to one one guy today, uh, but that's not a lot. You know, I have one reporter reaching out to me about gold, uh, you know, you once upon a time when the price of gold made a big move, a lot of reporters would call me to get my take on it. But, you know, now uh, people are really not too interested. Now, of course, I think some people may be looking at the price of Bitcoin, right? Because Bitcoin now is about $10,000 in a a coin again, although they're not actual coins, but $10,000 a Bitcoin. Uh, As I'm recording this, we're 99 you know, something, 99, 20 or whatever. I don't know if we've actually gotten above 10,000 yet or maybe we have and I'm, we probably will be uh, given how close we are. So probably by the time people are listening to this uh, podcast, we'll probably be higher uh, than 10,000. So a lot of people are probably saying, who cares if the price of gold is at 1400 that means nothing because Bitcoin is at 10000 and it's going to a million. And so it doesn't matter about the price of gold. The price of gold is irrelevant because now we have Bitcoin, right? And, and this is the new gold. It's better than gold. And so maybe uh, Bitcoin is stealing some of the headlines away from gold. But there is a significant difference. Number one, even though Bitcoin is moving up more price-wise, Uh, The total market cap of all the gold in the world is much larger. So the move in gold is more significant than the move in Bitcoin as far as what it means for actual market capitalization. Uh, But also, I think that there's a huge difference. I think gold is beginning another leg of a huge bull market, whereas Bitcoin is in a sucker's bear market rally. I think Bitcoin bubble peaked at 20,000. I do not expect this rally to result in a new high for Bitcoin. At some point, uh, the bottom is going to drop out and the price is going to plunge dramatically. That's not going to happen to the price of gold. So the people who are buying into this Bitcoin rally are taking tremendous risk. And I can tell you that most of the people who are buying, you know, aren't going to sell, right? Doesn't matter that Bitcoin prices have tripled. They're not selling, right? Because they're holding for the moon. They're hodling. Right. I mean, that's one of the reasons uh, that this scheme can work so well and why the price can go as high as it can is because so many people won't sell no matter what, because they're too afraid of missing out on even more gains. And in that case, greed is going to kill so many people who have paper profits in Bitcoin because they're too greedy to take a profit, because they're too afraid on missing out on even bigger profits if they sell. But that's going to be their downfall because they're not going to sell. Because believe me, there's a lot of smart money that doesn't buy this nonsense and that is going to sell. And when they do, the bottom's going to drop out of the market. So Bitcoin may be taking some of the headlines now uh, from gold because the percentage gains are bigger, but ultimately the, the percentage collapse is going to be a lot bigger because gold is a safe haven asset, Bitcoin is a speculative asset. And when people stop speculating and get worried, they're going to buy more gold, but they're going to dump their Bitcoin. Now we had another IPO, I think it was yesterday, a company called Slack, which I've used their, uh, their messaging app before. And uh, they, they didn't do a traditional IPO where they get a bank and the bank uh, sells a lot of new shares and they raise a lot of money uh and they give the money to the company and of course there's a lot of fees paid to the investment bank this was a direct listing slack didn't need any money they had already raised all the money they needed uh through private rounds of financing slack was one of the unicorns and now it's a unicorn no more because it's actually a listed company and it's got a market cap of approximately 20 billion dollars again slack doesn't make money right maybe they will one day who knows but the market is willing to assign a $20 billion valuation to the possibility that maybe this company will work. Well, that's a high price to pay for a lottery ticket. Again, this is indicative of the speculative frenzy that the Federal Reserve has unleashed uh, with its newfound dovish policy, which of course is not dovish enough for um, President Trump who wanted an immediate cut. In fact, uh, it was uh, cash carry, who is not currently a voting member of the FOMC, but who will be. And obviously he's bucking to be the next uh, Fed chairman. Uh, but of course, if Powell serves out his term, the next Fed chairman is going to be appointed by whoever succeeds Trump, whichever uh, Democrat that happens to be. But maybe Kashkari is thinking, hey, you know, maybe, maybe Trump will win and he's going to want a team player in there. And so this guy came out and said, if it was up to me, if I had a vote, I would have voted for a 50 basis point cut right right away. I wouldn't wait till July. I would just go big or go home, right? And this guy was saying that the key is inflation expectations. They're not high enough. We need to make sure that people know we're serious about 2% inflation. And we don't want anybody doubting our resolve to deliver this great thing, this 2% inflation. And so we needed an immediate 50 basis point uh, cut. Now, of course, we're going to get a 50 basis point cut. Uh, And we're going to get a lot more. We're going to get 250 basis points because we're going to zero, but it's not going to help. In fact, you know, another stock, one of the ones that I've talked about on this podcast since the day it went public almost two years ago was Blue Apron, right? It went public in June uh, 2017. And the day it went public, I did a podcast. I titled that podcast, you know, Blue Apron. I mean, all that's missing is the stock stock puppet. And I thought that this was a crazy company that it had no chance of ever making money. That would probably eventually, you know, go bankrupt, except it didn't have any debt. So I thought it would take a long time before it ran out of money, but I thought it eventually would. Well, the stock made a new 52-week low today. This shows you how risky these IPOs can be. Remember, the stock came public at 20, and today it made a new low of $6.60. Now, you might think, well, that's not that bad. Yeah, but... uh, Last week, I think on Monday, it did a 15 to 1 reverse split. That's where, you know, if you used to have 15 shares, now you just have one. So if you adjust the $6.60 price for the 15 to 1 reverse split, the shares had a load today of 44 cents. So if you bought the IPO, you paid $10. It opened at 11. So if you bought it as soon as it went public, you paid 11. And today the stock was at 44 cents two years later. That's better than a 95% decline uh, in uh, shares of, uh, of Blue Apron. Now, you know, there's a lot of other Blue Aprons out there. There's a lot of other companies that aren't as bad. I mean, this one was just so ridiculous. You know, it was beyond ridiculous, right? And, and so this one collapsed much faster. But believe me, a lot of these other stocks that have multi-billion dollar market caps would already be crashing but for uh, the Federal Reserve. And ultimately, they will be crashing. You know, the Federal Reserve was in the news again today because it released the results of its stress tests. And I think maybe they do this every year now. I'm not sure. Uh, but they, you know, they just released the stress test. Because I, I, you know, I could have sworn I, I remember hearing uh, the results of stress tests before. Maybe a whole year has gone by uh, since we had the stress tests. But apparently all the banks passed, right? I mean, they passed with flying colors. This is great. Now, I think the stress tests are not really designed to test the stress. They're designed merely as propaganda. They want to create the false impression that the banks are solid and and, and there's nothing to worry about. So they're designing stress tests specifically so the banks will pass which means the stress tests are worthless, right? If you're rigging the tests because you want to make sure that the banks pass, then what's the point? I mean, what are you testing for? You're not testing for anything. What the Fed is trying to do is reassure the public. The Fed is trying to create a false sense of confidence in the banking system. And the way you know that the stress tests are bogus is you just look at the economic environment that they're testing for. And If you go to the most adverse scenario, right, because they have three scenarios, so let's forget about the two that aren't as bad. Let's think about the worst possible thing that the Fed can imagine happening to the economy, right? This is the worst thing. This is as bad as it can get. And under this horrible worst case scenario, inflation goes down. I guess remember, the Fed thinks inflation is a good thing. So the worst thing that can happen to the economy, as far as the Fed's concerned, is we don't have enough inflation. So they think inflation goes all the way down to like one and a half percent, right? Oh, my God, that sounds horrible, horrible. One and a half percent inflation. Oh, my God, how will we survive? They also assume that long-term interest rates fall. Oh, my, the horrors of that, right? Mortgage rates go down. The yields on treasuries go down. Under the worst economic scenario, the Federal Reserve can imagine it costs the government less money to pay interest on the national debt. Oh my God, that is just horrible, right? And then the other terrible thing that the Fed assumes happens during the worst economy they can imagine is that the dollar gains value. Oh my God, the dollar becomes more valuable? So Americans' wages have more value and more purchasing power you know uh, our savings have more value that's the worst thing that's the horrible thing that the dollar goes up in value now of course they do assume other bad things that are really bad unemployment goes up to 10 percent the economy goes into recession that kind of stuff but this other stuff is not bad and of course so under these ridiculous uh you know assumptions then the banks the banks are okay But what if something actually bad happens? What if instead of inflation going down, what if it goes up, right? What if instead of going down to one and a half percent, what if inflation goes to 5%? What if it goes to 10%? I mean, isn't that possible? I mean, the whole purpose of the stress test is to run the banks through every possible scenario you can envision to see how the banks handle it. Well. Isn't it possible that we can have 5% inflation or 10% inflation? I mean, we've had those inflation rates in the past, so why not do a stress test for that? You know, And what if when we have this breakout in inflation, what if interest rates go up, right? What if instead of long-term interest rates going down, right, they go up, right? What if the 30-year government bond, instead of going down to 2%, what if it goes up to 4% or 5%? We're 7%. I mean, is that so outrageous to assume that interest rates could go back up to maybe where they used to be, right? And what if mortgage rates go back up? What if mortgage rates went up to 8% or 9%? I mean, that used to be pretty standard in the mortgage industry. What if rates go back up there because we have inflation that pushes up long-term interest rates? And of course, what if we also have a recession? So we have stagflation. We have rising unemployment in a recession, but instead of inflation and interest rates going down, we have inflation and interest rates going up, right? That's much worse. That's a far more adverse economy than the one that they're envisioning, than the one that they're stress testing. I am willing to bet that if the Federal Reserve had a stagflation scenario, if it added that to uh, the stress, If they just ran the numbers and said, hey, how would the banks fare if we went to a 1970s style stagflation, where in addition to a recession and rising unemployment with falling stock prices and falling real estate prices, long-term interest rates go up, inflation goes up, the dollar goes down. What would happen in that scenario? And I'm willing to bet that every single bank that passed these stress tests would flunk that stress test which is probably why they're not testing for it. Because if they know none of the banks will pass, then what's the point of of running the test? Because they would obviously let the cat out of the bag. But of course, the Federal Reserve wants to assume that what I've just described is impossible, that it could never happen. But it's happened before, so why can't it happen again? In fact, not only is it possible, it's actually likely. It's more likely than what the Fed is assuming. Yes, that's what happened last time. The last time we had a big recession, we got lucky and interest rates went down and inflation went down because the world was dumb enough to believe that QE was temporary and that rates could eventually be normalized after the emergency. Well, as I've said many times on this podcast, nobody is going to be dumb enough to believe that this time. So as I've said, the generals, right, they always want to fight the last war. And the last war or the next war is not going to be like the last war. The next war is going to be an inflationary recession, stagflation. The Fed has no weapons to deal with that. Because remember, the Fed believes it has the weapons to deal with recession, which is cut interest rates, print money, right, stimulate, and they believe they can deal with inflation, raise interest rates, right, sedate the economy, drain liquidity. But... Those are opposites. What do you do if you have recession and inflation simultaneously? Well, nothing. They throw up their hands. There is no Keynesian playbook to deal with that. Remember, when it happened the first time in the 1970s, people thought it was impossible. They didn't know what to make of it because under the Keynesian, you know, rules, that can't happen. So when they, you know, when when it happened, instead of basically throwing away those Keynesian books because stagflation proved that it was a bunch of nonsense, right? You know, they still believed in it, right? But it's going to happen again. And in fact, since it happened before, people should be more likely to accept that it can happen again. And it will happen. And and that's, you know, that's why no one is stress testing for it. But this is what's going to happen, right? We're going to have inflation and we're going to have recession. And it's going to be the worst possible environment for financial assets, for the economy, And that is basically the main reason for the investment strategy that I have, because I have been anticipating for years the end game. I knew the box that the Fed was ultimately placing itself in, and I knew the difficult choice that it would ultimately be forced to make. And regardless of what it chooses, it's an economic disaster. So I have been positioning people to protect their wealth and to profit from this disaster for a long time. Now, obviously, I've been helping people position and profit from this for a lot longer than I anticipated. I did not realize when I you know, was putting people's portfolios together a decade ago uh, that we would have gone this far down the road, that we could have kicked the can down the road this long without it blowing up. I mean, I overestimated the intelligence of the rest of the world to figure this out. But you know, here we are, right? The breakout in gold, confirms that they're starting to figure it out the breakdown in the dollar that is just starting shows that people are starting to figure it out i mean they're not even close to figuring it out completely but they're now beginning to see a little bit of the light and they're going to be appreciating this more and more as the economy slips into recession and as the fed returns to qe and zero percent interest rates and because we had to wait so long right because the dollar you know, was able to rise for as many years as it did, that simply enabled the bubble to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And in fact, now I know that as the dollar is falling, you're going to see a lot of people, maybe even the president of the United States talking about this as if it's a good thing, like the dollar going down is good. It's going to help our exports. It's going to, you know, it's going to be good for the economy. It's not. The dollar going down is the pin that pricks this bubble. Because the dollar going down is what is going to lead to soaring uh, retail prices. Look, oil prices have moved up a lot this week. Some of it was for geopolitical concerns. But part of it, of course, was due to a weakening dollar. And the dollar is going to get a lot weaker. And so oil and other prices are going to get a lot higher. And it's going to be the specter of inflation that ultimately shines a light on on the Fed and and the box that it's in. Because the Fed constantly is able to claim that the reason that it's doing uh, this monetary policy, the reason it has interest rates so low, the reason it's doing QE is because we don't have enough inflation. Inflation is too low. Inflation is below their target. But how do they justify keeping interest rates low and doing QE if inflation is at 4% or 5%? There is no way to justify that. And if they try, nobody will buy it. So we are going to have a dollar crisis, right? We are going to have a sovereign debt crisis. And you had better be prepared, right? You had better be positioned. And if you are a Europe Pacific Capital client, if you have an account with me, you know, you should just be adding to your accounts now as quickly as you can. Because I know people have asked me over the years, Peter, how will we know, right? What is the sign that I need to see to know that, you know, where we're, you know, we're starting out. It's it, this is it. There's the, the lights are flashing brighter than ever that what we've been preparing for is now upon us. In fact, I know there was a, a, a client that um, was, was, I had talked to today that had told his broker that, you know, he was thinking of closing his account because he's tired of waiting for the strategy to turn around. And I had to tell the client, what do you mean you're tired of waiting? The wait is over. You know, if you look back at our strategies, we have been outperforming the S&P uh, for the last three quarters. If you go back to the beginning of the fourth quarter, the end of the third quarter of last year, all of our strategies are outperforming the S&P. Right, so we have—we it, it's already turned around, and that's with the dollar higher. The dollar index, even with today's drop, is still higher than it was nine months ago. So we're outperforming the U.S. stock market, even though we have the headwind. Of a strengthening dollar. But now when that the headwind of a strengthening dollar turns into a tailwind from a weakening dollar, well, I mean, this is when the outperformance is really going to kick in uh, to a whole new gear, right? I mean, we're, we're you know, we're we're gonna be in a much higher gear when the dollar is falling than when the dollar was rising. Because all of my portfolios are designed for a weakening dollar, and we haven't had one until just now. The dollar is just now starting to weaken. Gold is just now starting to strengthen. So this is the perfect time for my investment strategy to shine. And ultimately, I think that we are gonna make up for all of the underperformance. Clearly, if you have invested in the US stock market for the past decade or last five years, you're better off than had you been investing in foreign markets and in gold stocks. But in two or three years, that's not gonna be the case. I think a few years from now, if you then look back over the last 10 years or 15 years, investors will be better off in foreign stocks and commodities and gold stocks than investors who are in the U.S. stock market. And, of course, a lot of people who are in the U.S. stock market, they think they've made a lot of money. And on paper, they have. But they haven't got out, right? Just like the Bitcoin hodlers who refuse to sell. Well, a lot of people in the U.S. stock market are going to give up a lot of those gains over the next several years, over this next bear market. Whereas people who are in my strategy, our bear market is over, Right? And we're perfectly positioned to profit over the next five years, over the next 10 years, as this bear market and the dollar plays out, as this political crisis, as this economic crisis, as we go through this uh, stagflation and all these problems, uh, we are perfectly positioned. So if you have an account, thank your lucky stars that you can still add to it, that the dollar index is still as high as it is, that even though gold's at 1,400, that it's still as low as it is, that gold stocks are still as cheap as they are because so many people still don't get it. And if you're listening to this podcast, even if you made the mistake, if you had an account and you closed it, right? Because a lot of people closed their accounts at your Pacific Capital over the last few years. Uh, you know, you got to correct that mistake before it becomes too costly, before it's too it's too expensive to correct. You know, I have a feeling that by the end of this year, I think that there's a good chance we would have outperformed the U.S. market over the prior four years. You know. I mean, that may not be the case, but that's if I had to make a bet, that's what I would bet. I think that we're going to see a decline in the U.S. market between now and the end of the year. And I think our strategy is going to have an even better second half than it had a first half. And I think then we're going to make up and be uh, ahead of the S&P for the last four years. And then in a couple years after that, it'll be, you know, going back over a 10-year period. But it could really, really be even bigger if we end up with hyperinflation. I mean, then all bets are off. Right, I mean, that—that that is the worst case scenario. I mean, what the Fed is stress testing for, that's a walk in the park uh, compared to a hyperinflationary outcome, which we could easily have, right? I mean, that is the worst case scenario. But in order to avoid that, some real bad things are going to happen to the U.S. economy to avoid hyperinflation. It's not like it's easy to avoid that. At this point, it's going to be very costly, very difficult, but it's going to be very profitable for our portfolio either way. Whether we do what's necessary to avoid hyperinflation or if we don't have the political will to do that, and we suffer hyperinflation, I think we make a fortune in our portfolios. Of course, we make even more under hyperinflation, but I mean, I hope that's not the case because I don't even know if this country will be livable if we go through hyperinflation. So I, I, I'm certainly not rooting for that outcome. I mean, I, I and I'm not rooting for bad things to happen. I know bad things are going to happen, and I would rather the bad things not be as bad as they have to be. I hope that we do the right thing. Now, of course. I am rooting for this bubble to pop because the longer it it expands, the worse it's going to be when it does pop. So when people talk about, hey, Peter, you're rooting for recession, yes, because we need a recession. The sooner the better. If we would have had it a few years ago, it wouldn't have been nearly as severe as the one we're going to get, right? Everything the Federal Reserve is doing to fight recession simply means that the recession that they ultimately fight is that much worse because the recession is the cure, and if you're trying to resist the cure, well, what happens to the disease? The disease gets worse, right? So because I want the economy to go into a recession doesn't mean I'm a bad guy and I want bad things to happen. Bad things are happening. It's the recession that's going to cure those bad things. It's just that we have to deal with that. And dealing with that is not fun. Just like solving any problem is not fun, but it needs to be done. But of course, my fear is the politics of it and where this country is headed. And based on the things that the Republicans are saying and Trump is saying and and where the blame is gonna go, uh, it's very dangerous. So, I mean, I I can have mixed feelings about uh, how swallowing this bitter tasting medicine, you know, might ultimately impact the electorate and where the country is going to go. You know, another example of how completely idiotic this stuff is gonna get. Remember I talked on this podcast, uh, I forget which podcast it was, But I spoke about the concept of reparations, right? This is, you know, reparations for slavery, right? So money being given to uh, African-Americans as compensation for the fact that their ancestors may or may not have, have been slaves. And they're actually having the hearings. They had hearings on Capitol Hill this week. People were testifying about, you know, why we should have reparations. So they want to basically, so the hearings are, should we create a committee to study and make recommendations for whether or not we should have reparations for slavery? And I again, I talked on this podcast about how completely ridiculous the entire concept of, of reparations is, right? Because it's, I mean, it, it's completely impossible. And so I, I don't want to rehash all of the ridiculous aspects that make the whole thing completely unworkable. I just want to focus on what they're actually trying to accomplish. And I was reading this article. I put it on my Facebook page. uh, How reparations for American descendants of slavery could narrow the racial wealth divide, right? So this is kind of the goal. This is what they're trying to do. So forget about the fact that the whole concept is idiotic and it's unworkable in identifying, you know, who who should get the money and who should be required to pay the money. Because we're talking about compensating the descendants of people who were slaves and forcing the descendants of people who whose ancestors may not have even owned slaves, right? So, I mean, again, I don't want to get into all that nonsense again, but if you read this article, and it, it, try to read the thing without laughing because, I mean, I, I couldn't, but the guy is talking about a goal here and he says that, I'm reading right from his article, closing the racial wealth gap will require overcoming the effects of the grim historical trajectory. A program of black reparations should move to share, that should move the share of wealth owned by blacks to at least 12 to 13% of all the wealth. And the reason he says that is black people represent 12 to 13% of the population, but they don't own 12 to 13% of the wealth. They own a small fraction of that. And so he says that he wants the reparations to restore that that gap. And so according to this article, the average black household, right, would have to have $800,000, right? This is a quote. To put it another way, a program of black reparations should raise the average black household net worth by 8 hundred thousand dollars to put it on par with the average white household now think about the lunacy of something like that the average black household gets eight hundred thousand dollars so that it has the same average wealth as the average white household first of all if you gave every black family eight hundred thousand dollars the average black family I mean, or the you know, it was gonna, do you think the average American white family has eight hundred thousand dollars? I mean, not even close. I mean, the the average net worth for white households is massively skewed to the super rich, right? The billionaires, right? The reason the average net worth for whites is so high is because you have all these multi billionaires, right? Created by Fed policy that have all kinds of overpriced stock, right? So how are you going to make the average blacks? give them an $800,000 net worth. I mean, you're going to just take families today, black families uh, on welfare or maybe even working class black families where maybe they're making $60,000, $70,000 a year. You're going to give them $800,000? I mean, the only way to really do it, you would have to give most of the money to the richest African-American families. I mean, right, to, to make it fair, what you would have to do is say, hey, you're a black billionaire and you don't have as much money as other white billionaires, right? The average white billionaire, let's say the average white billionaire has a net worth of five billion, whereas you know the average uh, black billionaire, or maybe the average you know the, the black billionaire isn't even a billionaire, right? Maybe you know the average of the the wealthiest black families is only you know five hundred uh, million, but the average of the top white families is five billion. So what we need to do? We need to compensate that very wealthy black family by giving them billions of dollars so that they can be equal to the white family? I mean, is that what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to say, hey, here's this black guy that's suffering because, you know, he's in the top 1% of black households and he's only got, you know, half a billion, whereas if he or the top 1% of the 1%, whatever, but if he was white, he'd have 5 billion and this is terrible. He's missing all these billions because of slavery. And so we need to give him a bunch of money. Obviously, that's not what they're talking about. He's not talking about giving billions to billionaires or millions to millionaires. This guy is talking about making the average black family worth $800,000 by making sure that average black families get $800,000, which is so much more money than the average white family actually has if you don't want to count all the billionaires, right? The typical white family doesn't have anything close to $800,000. Trying to say that reparations won't be successful Unless the average black household ends up with $800,000. And of course, this guy doesn't even bother to consider where the hell are we going to get that money? How are we going to have enough money to give $800,000 to all these black families? Where's that money going to come from? I mean, we'd have to increase taxes incredibly uh, on, on white people. But how do you do that? How do you tax white people, right? Because I think that would be unconstitutional, right? You can't have a tax that just applies to white people, right? So they'd have to raise taxes on everybody because they couldn't just raise taxes on, on whites and not blacks. So they would have to have a general tax increase. So blacks would have to pay some of the higher taxes that was funding the reparations, right? You, you theoretically cannot have a tax and you just have to pay it if uh, if you're white. And again, you know, I went over this nonsense when I talked about uh, reparations but I mean how white do you have to be before you you know you'd be responsible I mean if you got if you're 10% black what I mean you know I mean so the whole thing is completely nonsensical uh, but the most likely way that they would pay for it of course is just well we'll just have the Federal Reserve print the money right let's just have a quantitative easing program for reparations right let's just have the Federal Reserve print up $800,000 check or $800,000 and give it to every African-American family well, what a disaster that would be. I mean, obviously it wouldn't be a disaster for the African-American families who got the checks, right? They'd have a party. But what would happen if a bunch of people who have nothing suddenly had $800,000? They'd run out and spend it, right? <laughs> but did they produce anything? No, right? They didn't make anything. They're just spending. So it's pure inflation. Prices would go way up. The value of money would go way down. I mean, this is all a bunch of nonsense. But you know, more than funny, it's so sad because they actually take this thing seriously. You know, every single Democratic candidate for president is in favor of this or of some form of of reparations for slavery. I mean, it's like a litmus test now because everybody wants the African-American vote. And obviously, if you're promising $800,000, right, if you're a black voter and some guy's like, yes, I believe that we need reparations and you're going to get $800,000, I mean, who's not going to vote for that? I mean, a candidate promising you eight hundred thousand dollars—you got my vote. And now, if you're a candidate say, "Well, no, I'm—I'm—I'm I'm I'm not in favor of that. I'm against that. I don't want you to have eight hundred thousand dollars." Well, you're not going to get my vote, right? So this is like—you know—you gotta—you gotta believe in this nonsense to get the Democratic nomination. I don't know how you really back away from it uh, in the general election, uh, you know. But of course, you know—I don't know that they're ever going to present the bill, like how this is going to be paid for, it's just magic money, right? Somehow we're just going to do it. You know, this article cost, you know, brings back the whole idea of, you know, they were supposed to get 40 acres in a mule. And then he's trying to think of, well, you know, we got to figure out how much 40 acres is worth, uh, you know, today, you know, and I guess this guy, in his article, he said, well, that's about one and a half to $2 trillion if we give every African-American 40 acres in a mule. Well, I guess he's overlooking the mule, I guess I guess no one really wants a mule these days, but he's just looking at the 40 acres, which is a lot of land because back then everybody was farmers, right? Why would you need 40 acres today? How many African Americans are gonna start farming? Right? I mean I mean we hardly have anybody. Back then, I mean almost everybody who worked was a farmer. I mean, because we didn't have the Industrial Revolution yet. I mean, probably 90% of the people were farmers. That's why you needed 40 acres. You know who needs 40 acres now? Right? You're gonna give somebody, you know, this the whole thing is nonsensical. But this is an example of the the nutty stuff that the left is going to come up with. And as I said at the beginning of the podcast, stock market investors haven't even begun to fathom what's in store for them, because apart from this massive recession that's going to include rising inflation and rising interest rates, stagflation, this disaster that's going to be so much worse than what we had in 08, 09, the politics couldn't be worse nobody is thinking about that all of this nutty stuff, right? That exists in the minds of all these, you know, idiots, right? All these fools, these are the fools that could be running the country. They could be writing the laws. Now, the one thing that potentially will protect us is the Supreme Court, unless they succeed in stacking that too because they want to, they want to put more justices on the Supreme Court so they'll rubber stamp all this nonsense. And completely ignore the Constitution. Let's hope that doesn't happen. But, you know, we can hope for some good things, but we better plan for some bad things. And that's why I said uh, time is running out. Look at what's happening. See the warning signs and take action now to protect yourself. Oh, by the way, I wanted to mention uh, Freedom Fest. I'll try to mention it again. Uh, But if you haven't signed up for Freedom Fest, it's in July in Uh, Las Vegas, I know it's hot in Vegas in July, so you can stay inside. There's lots of stuff going on. July 17th through the 20th, go to freedomfest.com. You can sign up. There is a cost, but if you use the promotion code SHIF, my last name, S-C-H-I-F-F, when you sign up to go to Freedom Fest, you'll get 50 bucks off your registration. And I will see you there. I'll be there. My entire family, once again, will be in Las Vegas For Freedom Fest, it is one of my favorite conferences to go to. And if you haven't been, you should go. And if you've already been, well, you know, you probably know that you should go back and and, and do it again.